I'm Robin Amler of IBS Intelligence. You're listening to the IBSI Views podcast. With me is Richard Holden, Professor of Economics at the University of New South Wales Business School in Sydney. And we are talking about his new book, Money in the 21st Century, Cheap, Mobile and Digital. Now, I think I get mobile and digital. How is money cheap? Well, money has been, since about 2008, very cheap in terms of low interest rates. And so listeners will recall that in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, central banks around the world cut interest rates to near zero or zero, or in some cases, even to negative interest rates. Now, after the pandemic, they've ticked up a little bit to try and combat the inflation that came out of that, but they're still very low by historical levels. And, and most people think that once inflation's under control, they'll be coming back down again. So in that sense, money is, is really cheap on a uh, long run view of things. I suppose I, I was wondering whether you might have been referring to the cost of creating money, because if it's digital, it's easy to create and it costs nothing to create. Well, that's absolutely true as well. Very cheap to, to create and also, uh, you know, able to have a lot of other features. We're starting to live in an era of programmable money where you can have money have certain features, have certain time delays and so on. So money creation, as you point out, is also cheap. The thing about money and the way it's operated for the last, well, few hundred years, I guess, is that it is controlled by a central authority. Will it continue to be controlled by central authorities or are we seeing the beginnings of decentralization? Well, that's a really deep question that goes to the heart of what I talk about in the book. And I think there is, there's a sort of fork in the road here. So, so one version is it will continue to be controlled, probably in a different form. One of the things I argue for is the establishment of central bank digital currencies. So the US Federal Reserve, for instance, creating what I call FedCoin, a, a, a digital US dollar. And one can imagine the Bank of England and the Reserve Bank of Australia and other central banks doing the same thing. China are already quite far down this path with their ECNY. It's really not a, a pilot these days, but more of a rollout. So I think that's coming and is important. That would still be centrally controlled. But again, I talk about 2008 as the year that changed everything because it was the, the year of the birth of cheap money through a response to the financial crisis. It was the year of the birth of mobile money through the, uh, the launch of the iPhone. And it was also the year of the birth of digital money with Bitcoin. And so that's the decentralized path is that cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Ether really take hold and become meaningfully useful as a store of value and for transactions, which of course they're, they're not really at the moment. Or there's a creation of a private digital currency. Now, one could imagine Amazon or Apple or one of these other large technology and platform companies doing this. Indeed, Facebook, with its Libra and then renamed DM project, came breathtakingly close to establishing a global private digital currency. And that would have been probably not decentralized so much, but controlled by a private company. And I think that's a very concerning and dangerous path to go down and is one of the reasons why central banks creating their own digital currency is an important defensive measure against that kind of private digital currency. 
Well, that is how a government would be able to preserve its role in the management of money by creating a CBDC. I think that's exactly right. The idea that you can ban Bitcoin or eventually ban private digital currencies that might be created by large companies, I, I think is kind of one of these pushing on the ocean things. The way to do it is to create something that's better. It's to crowd it out. It's to create something that has a lot of the functionality or all of the functionality or more functionality than the alternative and to just beat them in the marketplace, essentially. And central banks have enormous competitive advantage in this. They're holding a lot of a lot of markers in this competition. They just need to act before it's too late. Well, the thing about existing digital currencies, you mentioned Bitcoin a couple of times. First of all, there are a lot of them. Secondly, even more than fiat money, they have no real value. The value of Bitcoin is purely speculative. It is a speculative commodity. It is not a medium of exchange. Well, I think that's right. So you you, you sort of make a very useful distinction between the kind of intrinsic value of something and the value of what you can do with it, what you can use it for. In a sense, pounds or US dollars don't have a lot of useful value beyond, strictly speaking, all you can really guarantee that you can do with US dollars is pay taxes to the Internal Revenue Service or in, in say, the UK's circumstance with pounds, all you can really do is pay your pay your UK taxes. Now, of course, we live in a world where you can do a lot of other things with it. You know, you can buy a whole range of goods and services, you can use it as collateral for things and so on. But that's really a matter of convention or norms or what economists like me would call an equilibrium phenomenon. And those things could apply to Bitcoin as well. One of the big drawbacks of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin is that they're so their price is so volatile, they're a really lousy store of value. And notwithstanding the recent inflationary outbreaks in advanced economies, fiat currencies in, uh, in stable democracies have tended to be a pretty good store of value over time. So that's a big difference. As money evolves, and it is still evolving, we are in a state of flux. I'd like your take on what the future looks like Money in the 21st century is your title. What is money in the 21st century going to look like? What is it going to mean for the way economies work and for the way the governments have to manage the levers of economic power? I think inevitably, but it will take effort from governments, we will end up with central bank digital currencies that will largely crowd out these private digital currencies like the decentralised cryptocurrencies. I think that'll have a lot of benefits in terms of cutting down of the use of cash for illicit activities. I think it'll lead to more tax revenue for governments. There's, you know, it's estimated that even in quite advanced, sophisticated economies like the UK and the US and Australia, somewhere between seven and seven and ten percent of economic activity takes place in what you might call the shadow economy that's unregulated, untaxed. And so on. And so I think we'll make inroads into that. One sort of subtle thing um, is it'll change the way that monetary policy operates, which is right now the government, the, the central banks don't set the quantity of money. They really set a target interest rate and say, this is what we're, you know, the Bank of England say, says, this is the interest rate we're targeting. And we're going to lend to and buy from banks 
around that target interest rate and that will kind of lead the price of money, the interest rate, to end up being that number. Uh, That wasn't always the case. Back in the sort of 1970s or so, central banks set actually the quantity of money. So this is how many sort of dollars or pounds there are on the market. If we move to central bank digital currencies, we'll have to go back to that, that system, and that's not a bad thing, but that'll be a kind of subtle change in how things are done. I think the bigger change is to what happens to commercial banks. And so... Not a lot of people understand this phenomenon that actually private banks do a lot of money creation themselves. So when you go and get a home loan or a car loan, the bank that lends that to you is actually creating money. You get a £100,000 loan, they put £100,000 in your account for you to go and buy whatever it is with it. And then they say, you owe us £100,000, that's another account with a, with a sort of a debit in it. That creates £100,000 out of thin air. And that sort of private credit creation system is not compatible with how a central bank digital currency can really work. And so the role of commercial banks could end up changing a lot in the future and that they would be far more pure intermediaries figuring out, okay, I'm going to borrow from the central bank and figure out who's a good risk to lend to, who's got a good small business idea, who's a good mortgage um, prospect and and so on. So it could really change the role of commercial banks in, I think, a way that would be beneficial and would stop some of the financial or cut down on a lot of the financial instability and speculation that we've seen in recent years and decades. That's something that the commercial banks might not be too happy to see happen, I would have thought. Well, you're quite right. Taking away power and the ability to generate profits from them is uh, something that they're not going to take lying down. I talk about that at, at some length in the book. There's an even starker vision that some people have. This is not one to which I ascribe, but that is actually you don't need commercial banks at all anymore. Everyone can just have an account with the Bank of England or with the US Federal Reserve. It's just a digital account. We can have a digital wallet. Now, I don't, I don't think that central banks should be or would be particularly good at getting in the business of, of transactional banking and things like that. I think there's an ongoing role for commercial banks. But that said, that is a live sort of idea and, in a sense, proposal. So it may well be that commercial banks settle for some kind of reduced role where credit creation is taken away from them rather than see the really dramatic thing, which is that they're really squeezed out of the market altogether. I'm not sure, looking at it from another angle, I'm not sure as an individual, whether I am a a personal individual or a corporate individual, that I would want the central bank to have that stark a picture of my finances. Well, I think that's an important point. And, you know, sort of full disclosure, in a sense, under the central bank digital currency proposal that I, I suggest, central bank would, in principle, have visibility into your transaction history and so on. I think what's terribly important is that that information be carefully guarded. Now, the central bank themselves doesn't really have any, other than curbing illicit activities, which is really important, um, they don't have any particular interest in that. And secondly, your your uh, run-of-the-mill commercial bank at the moment knows terrifying things about where you spend your money and so on, and that seems to not be used for nefarious purposes, at least to the best of my knowledge in advanced democracies. But 
there is a legitimate pushback against government in a broad sense, including central banks having this kind of information about one. And, and I think what needs to be done is obviously privacy needs to be taken very seriously. And this is done all the time where there are special courts that adjudicate whether government can, for instance, get access to wiretapping, can install wiretaps, can do things. So in the US context, you know, a FISA court uh, order is required to be able to, you know, bug people's phone lines, <laughs> stick cameras in their homes if they're suspected of all kinds of illicit activities like human trafficking or terrorism or things like that. Um, and I think those safeguards are there and they need, we need to be very vigilant about those. But those issues will be raised and there'll be a libertarian right that don't like this idea at all. But I think it's important to compare it to the counterfactual, which is presumably people who have that perspective aren't wild about the idea that commercial banks already know exactly what they're spending money on, exactly where and exactly when. So I, I think we're through the looking glass to a degree. Just to be awkward about it, the country that is most advanced in operating a CBDC, you mentioned, is China. This is an arm of control of the Chinese state at one level. Well, that's exactly right. And don't get me wrong, I'm not excited about Xi Jinping knowing a whole lot of things about me. I mean, I think this really sort of goes to the point of why we need these kind of democratic safeguards against things. I mean, the Chinese social credit system, quite apart from their digital currency, the Chinese social credit system, which is really orthogonal to that, has been operating for a long period of time. And there's, you know, it almost it sounds almost comical, but there are stories of, you know, people sort of going down to fetch newspapers in their dressing gown and getting a minus one on the social credit system because that's predictive of some kind of thing that the CCP isn't excited about. And I don't think most of us who've enjoyed a life of liberal democratic freedom want to be anywhere near a system like that and not go down that path. And I think that underscores why these kind of safeguards are terribly important. Okay, finally, let's polish up the old crystal ball. What does the economy of the mid-2050s or even the 2080s look like with all these developments in place, with active CBDCs, with active digital money, with active mobile money, which is something obviously that a lot of people are already using. I see when I go to the office every day, people waving their smartphones at turnstiles or even at supermarket shops. What does the economy look like? I think the economy on, on this level is basically frictionless. So, you know, when the creators of Companies like Uber talked about what they were doing in the ride-sharing and point-to-point transportation market. They talked about a frictionless experience. You know, you're not sitting there at the curb either trying to, you know, in a no-stopping zone while there are cars honking and your driver's getting increasingly, taxi driver's increasingly frustrated while you fumble for, for bills and coins or credit card payment and so on. It was a, fr- you know, you just get out. That sort of frictionless experience, I think, will will be expanded to every transactional and economic interaction that we have. I think we'll have a much smaller shadow and economy with the associated illicit activities. And I think what's really powerful is, you know, what people sometimes refer to as Web3 will be a bigger and bigger thing. Now, this includes things like decentralised finance, smart contracts, and a whole range of really positive financial innovations that can only be powered by digital currencies. 
that are currently being held back by the fact that blockchain, well, blockchain uh, can't be used for this by design. Ethereum, the Ethereum blockchain can be used for smart contracts. That was the whole stepping off point that Vitalik Buterin, who created it, wanted to do. But it, again, ETH is is quite volatile, so um, can't really be used for that. Once we have central bank digital currencies, we'll see Web3 as, I think, an even bigger thing than, than if you like, the original internet or, you know, um, Web1 and Web2. As crystal balls go, uh, I'm pretty confident in saying it'll be a big change. It'll be exciting. It'll be remarkable. But um, as the American baseball player Yogi Berra once said, it's difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. So I'm not sure exactly what it'll look like, but I'm pretty sure it'll be exciting. Thank you very much. Richard Holden, Professor of Economics at the University of New South Wales Business School in Sydney, author of the new book, Money in the 21st Century, Cheap, Mobile and Digital.